couple years ago, I, I made a pretty impulsive decision, okay? And I haven't hit the midlife crisis yet. I didn't buy a sports car or anything like that. But I decided that I was going to run a marathon, okay? Now, what made it impulsive was that I decided to run a marathon eight weeks before the start of the race. Now, if you know me, I'm a guy, I enjoy sports, I love athletics, I enjoy exercise and working out, but I've never been a runner, you know, just a tried and true, straight up runner. I wake up every morning and jog. That's never been my mentality. But, but here's how I prepared for this race. This is my reasoning. I thought to myself, well, this race is going to be on a Saturday. It's going to be in the morning. So what if for the next eight weeks, I would just wake up every Saturday morning and run as far as I can, all right? And hopefully over the next two months, I'll be prepared for 26.2 miles. And so sure enough, I wake up one morning, you know, I, I eat a quick breakfast and I head out. And I'm, I'm able to make it 10 miles. And I try again the next week and I can go 11 miles. And the next week I go 12 until the week before the race, I've built my mileage up to 17 miles. Okay, not quite 26, but I'm feeling pretty good about myself. So race day comes and I'm feeling great. I'm energized, I got a good night's rest, I carb loaded, right? I thought I did everything right, and I come out strong right out the gates. I run those first 13 miles really well. I hit 17, which I'd done before, and then, right, I hit the wall, okay? And it hit me hard, all right? In fact, I was so tired, beat up, exhausted, that at one point, I think around mile 18 or 19, I saw a row of portajons, okay? Instead of speeding up and like plugging my nose, I actually went into a portajon, all right, not to go to the restroom, just to sit down, okay? <laughs> all right? That's how tired I was. I sat, I sat in a porta potty for about four minutes, all right? And there I, I made a vow with myself. I was like, I'm not walking for the rest of the race. I said, I'm gonna finish this thing, I'm not walking. And so I, I, I come out of the portajon. And it felt like I was running as fast as I can. I'd look to my left and my right, and I'd see wheelchairs passing me. You know, I'd see senior citizens passing me, moms pushing strollers. But eventually, I finished it. All right, the point is this. All right, I started this race, and my mind was fresh. But by the end of it, it was extremely fatigued. My body was energized, but 26 miles later, I was exhausted. In a sense, over the course of that race, my body moved from life to death. But here's what's really interesting. Do you know there's actually a story in the Bible of two men? They're actually disciples, and they sit out on a race. And their race isn't 26 miles, it's actually seven miles. But instead of going from life to death, they actually experience the opposite experience. And the longer they travel, the stronger they get. See, when they begin their journey, they start, and their hearts are full of despair and fear. But by the end of their journey, they're full of boldness and joy. Here's why this is important, because the Bible describes our life as a race. And a lot of times, it feels like a race, not a sprint. It's longer than a marathon. It feels like a long-distance endurance race. And I'd be willing to bet most of you don't want to run this race with fear and trepidation, but with boldness. And so what I want you to do is read with me as we see what empowers these men to run the race of life with burning hearts. I'm going to read from Luke 24 verses 13 through 27 should be on the screens read along with me it says that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened and while they were talking and discussing together Jesus himself drew near and went with them 
but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is, it, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, and then one of them named Cleopas answered them, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things has happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all scripture, the things concerning himself. So we have three points this morning. First, we're going to, we're going to look at these, exam, these disciples and see what it looks like to misunderstand the Bible. Second, we'll look at what it looks like to have a right understanding of the Bible. And then finally, we'll see the effect of that. It's a burning heart, a burning from the Bible. So we'll start with misunderstanding Scripture. See, we're introduced to two disciples. Now, these aren't part of the original 12 disciples. These two men were simply followers of Christ. And this story picks up three days after the cross and the crucifixion. And these guys are traveling from Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus. Now, here's what you got to understand. This isn't a fun run. This isn't a nice stroll that you take on a green belt. These men are fleeing for their lives. They're escaping Jerusalem. And you can almost sense the state of their minds and their heart. These men are defeated. They're sad. They're confused. And they're extremely discouraged. And there's a pretty good reason why. It's because their Messiah, their leader, Jesus Christ has just died on the cross. And even though, as we'll see in just a couple minutes, the Old Testament Testament prophesied of Jesus' death in detail, these two men were caught by surprise. They had missed it. And, And this scene is pretty funny because the resurrected Jesus actually appears to them, okay? And Jesus conceals his true identity from these two men, and Jesus is almost sandbagging, right? He's messing with these guys. He comes up to them like your middle school kid comes. And he says, hey, what you talking about, right? What's going on? What's happening, guys? And they look at Jesus with almost an incredulous look. And they say, look, how do you not know? Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows the current event. It's Passover week. But this wasn't like any other Passover week we've ever seen or experienced. Because Jesus Christ came. And when he showed up on Monday, we welcomed him like a king, right? We threw out palm branches. We sang and we praised him. But guess what Jesus did? He went to the temple and he cleansed it out. And he really made some guys mad. He really ticked the leaders off. And guess what they did? They plotted against Jesus. They arrested Jesus. They falsely accused Jesus. 
And they actually sent him out of the city to his death. Jesus Christ was just executed on the cross. But in the very next line, these men, they actually show their true colors. They show their true understanding of Jesus because they say this, we hope that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. See, we're beginning to see the faulty understanding that these men have about Jesus. They view Jesus as a political savior. They view Jesus as a military messiah, someone who would, who would overthrow Rome all right, and establish a physical kingdom. But Jesus was a spiritual savior, and he established a spiritual kingdom. And they, so what these men hoped is that Jesus wouldn't be condemned by the leaders, but he would rule over the leaders. They hoped that Jesus wouldn't be crucified by the Roman government, but that he would overthrow the government. And likewise, these disciples hoped that they wouldn't be persecuted, but they would reign politically with Jesus. And they say, now it's the third day. See, these men did understand that Jesus had prophesied and promised that he would raise from the dead. But even though they're standing and talking to the resurrected Jesus, they don't realize that the resurrection has occurred. Because they assumed, they expected it would be big, it would be public, it would be a spectacle. And so what these men are probably feeling and thinking and asking themselves is what just happened? And how could we have been so wrong? This is the same mood, the same feeling that you might have, maybe if you're playing sports and you have a devastating loss, right? And you hop on that team bus and you replay every play in your mind over and over again and you ask yourself what just happened? Or maybe you made a big bad business, a bad business deal or investments. And you're asking yourself, how could it have gone so wrong? That's what these men are thinking as they travel seven miles. And do you notice how Jesus responds? Not with a side hug, not with a pat on the back, no sympathy, no compassion. He says, you're a fool. You men are slow of heart. When he uses the word fool, he's calling them dull, ignorant, and stupid. Okay? And here's why Jesus has such strong words. The, the, these guys weren't intellectual fools. These are men who read Scripture. They studied Scripture. They listened all right, in temple each and every week. But they were fools because they had an incomplete understanding of Scripture. They were missing one key thing. They had misunderstood the Old Testament. And here's their fatal flaw. They failed to see Jesus as the theme of Scripture. Do you see this? These men were fools because they failed to see Jesus as the theme of Scripture. Do you understand what Jesus says? It says he started with Moses and the prophets, and he interpreted everything concerning himself. Now, what Jesus is saying right here is this is a technical term, Moses and the prophets. He's actually referring to the Old Testament. Because if you were to open your Bible and look at the first five books of the Bible, they're called the Pentateuch. And they were all written by the same man. You want to guess who that was? It was Moses. And the next section that you'll jump into are called the prophets. So here's what Jesus is saying. The first five books of the Bible, the prophets, the entire Old Testament, it's all about me. So here's the point. If you approach Scripture, if you open your Bible, and you view it primarily as a checklist, as a guidebook, as an advice column, as a philosophical textbook, 
you will remain a fool. If you open your Bible and the first question you ask or the approach you take is, this is all about me, you'll remain dull. See, when we open the Bible, the first question we ask is, what does this say about Jesus? Not what does this say about me. That's how you have a proper and right understanding of Scripture. So if that's how these men got it wrong, Jesus is about to correct them. He's about to give us the right way, the proper way to understand the Bible. All right, and I said it already, but Jesus starts with Moses and the prophets, and he interprets to them all the scripture concerning himself. Now look, you probably read the Bible, and there are some moments, there are some interactions in Jesus' life and ministry, and you probably think to yourself, I would have loved to have been there, right? I would have loved to be an eyewitness, maybe in the manger, right? Get, Get to see the real manger scene. How cool would that be? Or maybe there's a certain sermon or teaching that Jesus gives and you would have loved to hear it. Or if I could just see him perform this miracle or see him raised from the dead. This story right here for me, this is top five. I mean, I I would would love to have been here. And I've been in some great Bible studies. But this is the ultimate Bible study. Because you understand what Jesus is doing, all right? He's opening the word. He's rolling out the scroll. He's pulling out the Bible app. And he is actually explaining, all right, how they all concern himself. This is incredible. Jesus, there's 39 books in the Old Testament, 23 authors, 23,000 verses. And Jesus says, every author, every verse, every book was writing about me. In, in a sense, all right, Jesus gives the Sunday school answer. You know what I'm talking about? Like when I was in Sunday school, all right, very often we'd have Bible quizzes, all right? And if you shot your hand up and got the question right, usually you got a sticker, a prize, a piece of candy. All right? So I was pretty savvy, and I figured this out. All right? Jesus wasn't always the answer, all right? but he usually was. And so I would shoot my hand up as fast as I can, and I would just yell out, Jesus. It didn't matter what the question was, because odds are, all right, more than likely, it was going to be Jesus. All right? Now, that's a silly example, but it's good theology. All right? Because the Old Testament is all about Christ. Christ even says so. So do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying the Bible is all about me. But let me give you, give, give you two other thoughts before we dive into what, to this ultimate Bible study. This is also how New Testament authors read the Bible. Does that make sense? The apostles, Paul and Peter, this is how they understood the Old Testament. In fact... In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, this is what Paul says. I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean if you came up to Paul and you're like, Paul, what's the weather going to be like today? Or, Paul, what time is it? And he's just like, Jesus, he was crucified. Is that all he could talk about? No, that's not what Paul is saying. But what Paul is saying, he's saying is this. If I'm teaching, if I'm preaching, if I'm opening the word... I'm talking about Jesus because it's all about Christ. But guess what else we can learn about this one comment? This is how pastors should preach each and every Sunday. And can I just say this? All right, we have a pastor who faithfully proclaims, not moralism, not do this and don't do this, but faithfully week in, week out, preaches Jesus. All right, amen to that because that's what Jesus calls us to do. And so look, if you're new to church, if you're new to the Word of God, all right, we're about to hit a lot of Old Testament people, places, 
traditions, and locations. All right, just hang in with me. All right, you might have not heard these names. All right, you might have heard of these places, but just hang with me. All right, as we go through some of these things, I'm going to do my best impersonation of Jesus. All right, delivering this Bible study. What I want to do is I want to start in Genesis one. All right, and work our way through the Old Testament and show you how maybe, just maybe, Jesus would have interpreted Scripture and delivered this Bible study. All right, so we're not going to go in-depth, expository style of each verse. So just hang with me. We're going to flip our way, starting in Genesis 1 through the Old Testament. All right, so in Genesis 1, who's the first person we meet? His name is Adam, right? And when we find Adam, he's in the Garden of Eden. It's perfect. It's sinless. There's no hunger, and he has no needs, but then the serpent shows up. Right, and the first time that Adam is tempted, he what? He falls. He gives in to temptation and sin enters the world. Do you know that Jesus is actually referred to as the second Adam in the New Testament? But unlike Adam, Jesus' public ministry does not start in a garden or an Edenic state. It begins in where? The desert. It's dry. It's dusty. And he's hungry and he's alone. And unlike Adam, Jesus is tempted for 40 days, and he never gives in. And the book of Romans, specifically chapter 5, says this, is that Adam brought sin into the world, and Jesus brought righteousness. And so more than likely, Jesus pointed at Genesis 1, and he says, Look, disciples, look, King's Chapel, Adam is really about me, because where Adam failed in the garden, I passed the test in the desert. It's all about me. And then if you flip in your Bibles to Genesis 3, this is two chapters later, all right? Sin has entered in the world. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and God is dealing with it. And so he sets Adam and Eve to his left, and he sets the serpent to his right, and he pronounces punishment on both of them. And then in Genesis 3.15, God speaks these words. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, or the serpent and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God is speaking to Adam and Eve and the serpent. Then all of a sudden, in the second half of this verse, he starts talking about a he, a mysterious he. And if you read closely, you're wondering, who is this he? All right, what's the Sunday school answer? The he is who? It's Jesus, right? Because what God is prophesying right here in this moment is, is how the serpent will be vanquished. And he says this, substitute the he with the name Jesus. Jesus shall crush the serpent's head, and the serpent shall bruise Jesus' heel. In fact, Romans 16 says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Do you know that most theologians actually call this verse the proto even Jelion, all right? Remember that if you want to impress your friends. Here's what it means. First gospel. First gospel. The first mention of the gospel is not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's in Genesis at the beginning. Because God promises that one day a he, Jesus Christ himself, will crush the head of Satan, the serpent. And how will he do it? On the cross. And so more than likely, Jesus point to, pointed to this, to this verse, and he said this, Disciples, I'm the snake crusher. On the cross, I was bruised. 
But on the cross, I crushed sin's head. This verse is all about me. And so then Jesus, maybe he flipped over to Genesis 6, and he brought up a guy named Noah. And at this point, sin has spread. It's no longer just between Adam and Eve and their family. Now it has spread and affected all of mankind. In fact, Genesis 6 says the the thoughts of man's heart were only on evil continually. And so God makes a decision that he is going to execute his justice and wrath, and he is going to flood the earth. If Genesis 1 was a story of creation, Genesis 6 is a story of recreation. So what was the story of Noah and the ark really all about? Well, the apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, he says this, eight persons, he's referring to Noah's family, Eight persons were brought safely through the water. And baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And so more than likely, Jesus pointed to the story of Noah and he said this, I'm the true ark. I'm the ark of safety. He said, brothers, the only way that you can survive the flood of God's wrath and judgment is to come under me. Sitters can enter the protection of my ark, and I will cover you from the wrath of God. I am the only way that you can be brought safely through God's justice. Noah and the ark is all about me. So we go from Genesis 6 to Genesis 15, and we meet another man, a guy named Abraham, right? Father Abraham. And Abraham is known for his faith. Because Abraham is a man who answers the call of God and he leaves the known and enters the unknown. And so Jesus points to Abraham and he says, look, just like Abraham entered into the unknown, I left heaven. I left the ultimate comfort and I entered into a broken world to establish a new spiritual nation. And then Jesus might have flipped over to Genesis 22 and pointed out a specific particular promise that God gives Abraham. Here it is. God promises Abraham that through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Here's what's really interesting. The apostle Paul picks up this exact same promise in Galatians 3. And guess what Paul says? Guess how Paul interprets the fulfillment of this prophecy? He says in Galatians Galatians 3 that the promise made to Abraham and his offspring does not say, and to offspring, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. So Jesus pointed to the promise in Genesis 22, and he said this, I am the true offspring. I am the true son of Abraham. Through my life, death, and resurrection, I will bring spiritual blessing to every nation. This promise is all about me. But let's look at Abraham's physical son. This man's name was Isaac, right? So if you jump over to Genesis 26, you'll read a story about how Abraham takes his son up a mountain to offer him as a sacrifice to God. And Abraham will bind Isaac, and he'll lay him on the altar, And he'll pull up a knife to strike the fatal blow. And right before he drives that knife into Isaac, God speaks to Abraham. And he says this, Abraham, I know you love me because you did not withhold your son. 
Once again, Paul picks up this exact same verse in Romans 8, 32, and here's what he says. He, or God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So once again, Jesus, in the greatest Bible study ever, he looks at these disciples and he says, Isaac was all about me. Because I'm the son who is not willing to be sacrificed, I was sacrificed. I'm God's only son, and he did not withhold me. I am the proof that God loves you. This story is all about me. So we go from Isaac to Joseph. We meet Joseph in Genesis 37. And Joseph is a man who was rejected by his family. He was betrayed by his brothers. They actually throw him in the pit and leave him for dead. Eventually, Joseph is sold into slavery. He moves to Egypt. He remains faithful and obedient, but he is wrongfully accused and thrown into prison. And while he spends his day in prison, all right, he is surrounded by two criminals. Eventually, Joseph is released, and he ascends to the right hand of the most powerful man in that nation, Pharaoh himself. Well, what does that sound a lot like? Was Jesus betrayed by his own people? What was Jesus betrayed for? 30 pieces of silver. And when Jesus was crucified, when Jesus was falsely accused, he hung in between what? Two criminals. And where is Jesus today? He rules. He is seated at the right hand of the king. So Jesus pointed to, points to Genesis 37, and he says, like Joseph, I too forgive my betrayers. I use my power to save sinners. Joseph is all about me. And after Joseph, we meet a man named Moses. All right, now we're out of the book of Genesis. We've moved into the book of Moses. And Moses is known as a freedom fighter. He frees the Israelites from the dominion and the slavery of Pharaoh. Now, how do the Israelites escape? Well, the day before they're freed, every Israelite takes a lamb, slaughters that lamb, and not just any lamb, a lamb without spot, a lamb without blemish. And they take the blood of the lamb and they sprinkle it. They splatter it on the head and the post of their door. And so, Jesus points to the Passover lamb. Jesus points to the Exodus and he says this, My blood protects sinners. I am the true spotless, unblemished lamb. Only my death can free you from sin, Satan, and death. The exodus is all about me. And so next we see the Israelites move from Egypt into the desert, into the wilderness, and for 40 years they wander. And we meet, we, there are some crazy stories in the wilderness. All right, things that make you scratch your head. At one point, all right, we encounter Moses, and he gets so fired up, he gets so angry, he picks up his staff, and just starts beating a rock, all right? Anybody ever get so angry, you punch a wall, all right? Moses understands. But even this outburst, guess what it's all, guess what it's all about? It's about Jesus. Because 1 Corinthians 10.4 says this, drink from the spiritual rock that followed, and the rock was Christ. What do you think Jesus said in this amazing Bible study? He said to these men, God struck me so that you could have life. 
I am living water, and you receive it because I was struck by the rod of God's justice. Then we see the Israelites continue to wander, and they're fed day in, day out by bread from heaven. They actually call it manna. And Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he says, no, you know what? I'm the bread of life. I'm the manna. I'm the only thing that can spiritually nourish your soul. The manna was all about me. And so once we move on from the exodus and the wandering, the Israelites actually establish a nation. And they're ruled by prophets and judges and eventually kings. And we meet the most famous king, right? King who? King David. And David is most famously known for defeating Goliath. All right, and this is the textbook example how very often we preach and read scripture as if it's all about me rather than Jesus. Because most often when the story of David and Goliath is preached, right, what's the major theme? All right, you can face your giants. You may be an underdog, but if you just have faith, you can take on the Goliath in your life whether it be bad health, bad finances, or or bad family members, you can take them on. Just be like David. But that's not what the story's about. Because when when, when Jesus interprets this story, we don't insert ourselves into the character of David, but into the Israelite army. And how did they respond to this battle? They were fearful, terrified, and unwilling to take on Goliath. And so what Jesus more than likely said to these men is that, look, you have an enemy. You have a giant. You have a Goliath. And that enemy is sin. And guess what? It doesn't matter how hard you try, how much you want it, you can't defeat sin. This is a battle you can't win. And you need a a warrior to fight for you, and I'm the better David. And through my death, I bring victory over the enemy, the giant of sin. Even this story, David and Goliath, it's all about me. You understand what I'm saying? And so if even the life of David was about Jesus, then it makes sense that even the writings of David would be about Jesus. David was a prolific author. He wrote a majority of the book of Psalms. This was almost his his journal. He wrote a lot of poetry in here. And you read certain Psalms, that make you want to scratch your head. Psalms like Psalms 22. In this Psalm, David says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Later on, he says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Do you know that in Psalm 69, David talks about sour wine to drink? Now, here's what's really interesting. If you study the life of David, David was never forsaken by God. David's garments were never removed. David never drank sour wine. Here's the point. David wasn't writing about himself. He was writing about who? He was writing about Jesus. And Jesus points to Psalm 22, and he says this, I was forsaken. I was forsaken. My garments were divided. I drank the sour wine before I died for your sins. Even the Psalms are all about me. And after the Psalms, we move into the prophets. And we read books like Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, we, we, we meet somebody called the suffering servant. We read this, that he was pierced 
for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now, it doesn't get more straightforward than that, does it? But Jesus points to Isaiah, and he says, I'm the suffering servant. I was pierced. I was crushed. I was wounded so that you may be healed. The suffering servant was all about me. And this principle does not only apply to people. It also applies to places, locations, even buildings like the temple. You know what the temple was? This was a building. It was brick and mortar. It was made by stone. And people would come to the temple to worship and to draw close to the very presence of God. And very often, Jesus would teach and talk and refer to himself as the temple. In fact, at one point in Jesus' life and ministry, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And people are confused. They're saying it took us years and years to build this temple. Jesus, how are you going to break it down and build it back in three days? Well, Jesus wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about his body. Because Jesus was God. He was a living, breathing, talking temple. He was the presence of God. But even within the temple, there was a curtain, right? And this curtain, it separated the crowds, the people, you and me, from coming into the presence of God. And this was no ordinary curtain, all right? It wasn't a cheap curtain. This wasn't a Walmart curtain. This was a curtain that was so thick, it was as, as wide as your fist, And it was made up of four cords that had four distinct and different colors. It was made of blue and purple and white and scarlet. Because blue represents heaven. And purple represents divinity. And white represents holiness. And scarlet represents blood. Now can you think of something, more specifically someone, who is from heaven, divine, pure, and shed his blood. Even the, even the curtain was all about Jesus. And the moment that Jesus dies, the moment that he breathes his last breath, what happens to this curtain? It's torn in two. It's torn in half from the top to the bottom. And so Jesus points out to these men, Jesus points out to you and me that I was torn in half so that you can enter, so that you can come into the very presence of God. Do you see, because of Jesus, we we don't just peek into the presence of God. We don't just hang back from the presence of God. What does Hebrews say? We boldly enter the presence of God. The curtain has been torn, and it's all about Jesus. Now, here's the final thing they did in the temple, is they made sacrifices. And specifically, each and every year, they had something called the Day of Atonement. And that's when the high priest would make a sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel, And they would repeat it year after year. And they would sacrifice animals over and over and over again. And yet the writer of Hebrews says this, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And yet when Jesus comes upon the scene, how is he referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And so Jesus points out to these disciples, he points out to you and me, that I I go before God, and I am the ultimate sacrifice, and I die for sins past, present, and future. The temple, the curtain, 
the sacrifices, they're all about me. And look, guys, I'll stop right there. I promise you, all right, we could spend all afternoon here. I could point out women like Rahab and Esther, other men like Samson and Daniel, symbols like circumcision or even a lamp, how they all point to Jesus Christ. But we got to wrap it up, all right? So final point, how should we respond to this truth? How should we respond to the fact that the, that the Old Testament, the Bible, Scripture, is all about Jesus? Well, our hearts should burn. Read with me in verse 28. It says this, So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And while he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it. And he broke it. And he gave it to them. And he said, their, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sights. And they said to one another, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Do you see how this story ends? These two men, these disciples, they are begging Jesus, stay with us. They want more of Jesus. They wanted to spend all evening eating food, reclining, talking with Jesus. And so Jesus comes into their home, all right, and he actually takes over the duties as the host. Now, Jesus isn't being impolite or rude, but he decides to bless and break the bread because these guys are so focused on Jesus and his teaching. These disciples don't even want to eat. They're so focused on the word. They would rather eat the word than eat their bread. And so they are feasting, they are being nourished, they are focused on the Word of God. And what's even more amazing, they still don't know who they're talking to. At this point, they don't know the true identity of this man. The point is this, Look, brothers and sisters, seeing Jesus in the Bible is better than seeing a vision of Jesus in your bedroom. You get what I'm saying? Seeing Jesus, seeing Christ in your Bible is better than a vision of Jesus in your bedroom. Far too often we say, if I could just see Jesus, if I could have a vision of Jesus, then I'd have faith. But you see right here, all these men have is the word of God and they see Jesus. They sense Jesus. Their hearts burn from the very word of God. And this is the proper response to reading the Bible. How do you know if you're doing it right? You experience joy. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians, pastors in American history, says this, there is no true religion where there is no religious affection. If the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. Look, just in the same way, if you know me well, I'm a, I'm a pretty stoic guy. All right? I, don't, I don't get too carried away. I, I, I don't have a lot of high highs and low lows. I'm pretty steady. But I'll tell you this, every time I come home, all right, and I see my little girl and pick her up, I can't help it but smile and be happy. And you see Jesus is saying the same thing. Look, if, if anytime you open my word 
Anytime you read my Bible and you see Jesus, you can't help but feel joy. That is a proper response to reading his word. So if you read the word as a checklist, as an advice column, as a textbook, or maybe an encyclopedia, your hearts will never burn. Because Jesus is alive, and therefore scripture is alive. Hebrews 4.10 says that the word of God is living and active. And so what has happened to these men? God's word has overwhelmed them. It has overpowered them. And what do they do? They rise. And where do they go? They go home. They return to Jerusalem. They enter the danger. They enter the darkness because they have met Jesus in his word. And so if you're sitting here today and your heart doesn't burn or you haven't experienced this joy... Here's what I ask you. Have your eyes been opened? Do you notice when these men's eyes are opened is when Jesus breaks the bread. Now, what is that a symbol of? That's something we remember every month when we have the Lord's Supper. The broken bread represents the broken body. Here's what you got to understand is that Jesus loved you so much. Jesus loved you as a sinner that his body was broken on your behalf. See, the Bible says this, there's just one hero in the Bible, and it's not Adam, and it's not Abraham, and it's not Noah, and it's not David, okay? It was Jesus, and there's just one theme, and the theme is this, is that Jesus saved sinners. Jesus' body was broken for you, and whereas the Old Testament men look forward to the eventual, the future salvation, and look, they didn't understand the specifics, They didn't know how it was going to happen, when it was going to happen, where it was going to happen, but they knew that one day that God would make a sacrifice. God would send a substitute. Think about this, is that we look back with greater certainty, that we know more than Noah and Abraham and David and Moses. We know that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. So should our hearts not burn even more? See, the Bible's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. Therefore, your life should not be about you. It should be about who? Jesus Christ. If our our Bible and our bodies should be about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Everything is about Jesus. All right, pray with me. Dear Lord, we covered a lot of ground I think I've ever talked about that many Old Testament people at one time. But God, I I, I pray, just as we hear different ways, different angles, different stories that all point to you, that we would be men and women whose hearts burn for you. That we would be men and women who enter into the race of life, not as defeated disciples, but with burning hearts. That we would be full of joy, power, peace because we understand the gospel because we know you because we know that you save sinners so god i pray that we would leave this church with burning hearts for you and your glory we pray this in your name amen